Thank you, brothers. What a joy to be able to open up the book of Romans today, um, because we are a Bible-believing church. As I say, every Sunday that we gather, uh, we have the word cloud, and that reminds us of what is our anchor. We are, we are focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you'd bring up the word cloud, uh, you'd be able to see that the, the, the way that we know the gospel is through the Bible. And so we're unashamed of the gospel. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. I am not ashamed, and neither is New Covenant Church. We're glad you're here today, and because the gospel is proclaimed, because it's central, we do believe that we should be caring, cherishing of worship. We should be uh, generational. Uh, There's many things that are different because of the gospel. Now, if you will turn in your Bibles, let's reverently attend... To the public reading of God's inerrant, inspired, infallible word as given in the originals. If you're looking at your pew Bible, uh, the pew Bible, if you bring the lights up a little bit, you'd be able to see in Romans chapter 1, we'll be looking on page 1,195. And uh, as you look at the scriptures there, it's, talks, it's headed by God's wrath. But the uh, focus of these, the last week's sermon and this week's sermon is not all about the negativity. It's about God himself. Which ironically has been what we've been looking at in Sunday school as we've been looking through the confession of faith. And I encourage you to come at 9 o'clock to 10 o'clock as we dive into who is our God and how does he do what he does. It's really interesting. Uh, 9 o'clock to 10 o'clock, that's my commercial for the morning. Now it's a a privilege for us as we gather here at church to meet with God and to hear his word. And I pray you'll hear the Spirit as he makes the reading of the word and especially the preaching of the word an effectual means of salvation. Let's look at the two verses, verses 20 and 21, and then I'll come back and read a bigger portion. The focus of our text today in verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now we're going to pick up a few more here. Uh, many, of these, many of these verses seem to be very harsh. Uh, a lot of folks, when you say, Romans 1, Romans 1 you think that this is talking about sexual purity. And guess what? It is. And I'm not sure why I have lots of nice colors on me right now. Maybe we're talking about the wrath of God and we wanted to show you that feeling of that anger. Um, But actually, I want to show you some of the love of God as well. So now let's reread this. I want to begin in verse 16 and uh, read through the end of the chapter. And I want you to see how these verses about the invisible attributes of God actually are already on display. Uh, I want you to be able to leave today and know what an attribute is. I want you to make sure that you don't attribute attributes to God that uh, you think are yours, unless God has shared them with you. But let's look at the whole scripture there. Uh, Once he's finished the opening introductions and talked about his, uh, his calling and his passions to go to Rome, then he ends up saying about his his desire to preach the gospel. He says, I am not ashamed. This is verse 16 of the Bible. We're reading in Romans chapter 1. So this is God's word. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes it. To the Jew, but also to the Greek. And what he's saying there is whether you grew up with the Old Testament words being read to you or whether you're in the New Testament era where you haven't grown up with those Old Testament scriptures. He says, The gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone, regardless. Now, having laid that foundation, verse 17, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith and for faith. You're going to see this thing by faith. You're going to see righteousness from faith for faith because he quotes Habakkuk and he says, the righteous always live by faith. And that's true. Verse 18, there's another revelation. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. In other words, the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven for faith, but the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So in verse 18, you find that God, Theos, 
is revealing wrath, and it's upon the godless. It's called the ungodly, and uh, that means it's the ones who have erased God from their life. The ones that live, that live as if there is no God. Verse 19, for what can be known about God? Technically, that's not a question. But I'm raising it as we're reading it out loud. For what can be known about God? And the answer is what can be known about God is plain to people, to the secular world, because God has shown it to them. He's already made it known. Verse 20. He, there are invisible attributes of God. And then he names them. His eternal power and secondly, his divine nature. These are the two invisible attributes. He says, for these invisible attributes, namely the eternal power and divine nature, they have been clearly perceived by people ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. They are without excuse. Secular people have no excuse. It's been clearly revealed and they should clearly perceive it. But verse 21 explains some of the problem. For although they knew about God, they did not honor him as their God. And they didn't, after they didn't honor him, they did not give thanks to God either. But instead, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, their thoughts in their head and their hearts with their passions, they were different. Their, their thinking was futile and their hearts was darkened. Their passions turned ugly. And verse 22 ex explains it a little differently. He says, they, they went about saying that they had wisdom, that they were wise. But in reality, they were showing they weren't. Verse 23. And in their folly, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God, the glory of the one who created everything, for created images. Images that resembled the things on this earth. Man, birds, animals, and creeping things. In their foolishness, they thought those were the things that they would focus on, not him. Verse 24, therefore, Theos, God, did something. He gave them up, and what their hearts wanted, the impurity and the, and the lust of that impurity, and they ended up acting on it. You can see that. We'll pick up that in another sermon in the future. In verse 25, and because they exchanged the truth about God, remember they had suppressed it, and now they're exchanging the truth for something that's not true. It's a lie. It's a deception. It's a false gospel, or as, as Paul writes to the Galatians, it's another gospel which is not good news. They exchange the true truth for this false truth, this lie, this new state of being, and they worship and serve the creatures, the things that they can see, feel, and touch, rather than the one who made all of those things, the one who is like no other, who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, God gives them, gives them up to dishonor to dishonorable passions. And, and I'm going to skip verses, uh, the rest of that verse down to verse 32 and, uh, and tie these things together. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but secondly, they applaud or give approval to others who do them. It's not just that they do them themselves, but they disciple and encourage others to do these things that are bad. And that's why if I pick up in chapter 2, for when Gentiles who do not have the law of God do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. I'll get into that. That's uh, chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, when we get into these verses, sometimes it feels heavy. I think it is heavy. There's no way to tap dance through these first three chapters. Lord, when we understand how he's presenting the gospel, he presents the bad news in order to present the good news. And the bad news is really really bad. 
And in chapter one, we're running into that bad news over and over and over again. I do pray that instead of bringing us down, I pray that you will lift us up. Help us to understand some things that we didn't understand even before we came today. Lord, use the spirit to, to speak to our hearts, to give us a wow moment that we may know that you know us and that you might change how we know you so that it's more intimate and more based on truth, enabling us to go forth from this place, serving you in spirit and in truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text in Romans 1 is one of the key passages in the whole Bible about general revelation. Now, general revelation means that it's just general, and the opposite of general is specific or special. So if you realize it, just like if I asked you, where would you go in the Bible to look for uh, the resurrection? Well, you go to 1 Corinthians 15. If I were to ask you, where do you go for general revelation? You're going to go, and the explanation here is in Romans chapter 1, and probably the other text that I jump to is Psalm 19. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament or the land shows his handiwork. Day after day, or the order of, of the clock, the order of the rotation, it's, it's speech, that there's no language group that doesn't understand it. Everybody knows that the sun goes down and it comes back up. They all understand these things. And so you see general revelation in the created realm. And you can also go to Genesis 1, where it says that in the beginning, it was the triune God that made this world. The Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And according to John 1, it, Jesus was the one that, that made things. God the Father authorized it. It's, it's so amazing. He spoke the words into existence. Now, that's general revelation. So uh, I want you to know that the difference between general and special revelation is that everybody gets general revelation, but not everybody gets special revelation. Okay, that's one distinction. Special revelation is more than general. So general is kind of like a foundation, and special is what you build on top of the general. Now, it's not, it's not actually quite like that, because revelation is all revelation. It all reveals something. But God has revealed some things to the world, basically to people in this world, and then he's revealed more. Now, when he reveals more, usually that more has to do with salvation. That more has to show us something that brings us into a relationship with him. Otherwise, it's like if you see the beautiful sky or if you, if we, if you join me for our sunrise service uh, for Easter Sunday in April, we'll be down at the boardwalk in Rehoboth and we'll watch the, the sun pop out and the bright light over the horizon and we will be amazed and we'll probably be shivering. But you know what? We won't see God. Because God is not the sun, and God is not the sky, and God is not the birds, and God is not the beach. But the heavens declare that there is a God, and the earth shows his handiwork, his fingerprints. Now, when you start to understand this general revelation, and then you realize the more is when you realize that that same God has a plan to save us. That is special revelation. Special is when God does more than just creation and providence. It's more than just making it and sustaining it. Special is more than the world of the natural. It is the world of the supernatural. It's when God makes himself known. He interjects himself. And all of us know that Jesus himself is the ultimate special revelation. In the fullness of time, God stepped into this world. God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. He brought him into this world so that we might, as Hebrews 1 says, see the exact representation of God because God was with us. According to 2 Timothy, you also know that God entered into this world by special revelation with scripture as well. According to 2 Timothy 3.15, uh, 3.16 is given by God. It's breathed out by God. God himself is interjecting that. That's why it's special. Today we'll unpack this understanding of general revelation and you'll see it in contrast with the special. So if you're following along, uh, and there is a fourth point illustration for all of us, the first point is about God, theos, as I like to, to focus on this. Theos is the Greek word for God. He provides insights about spiritual sight. 
God tells us about spiritual sight, but he gives us these insights, and there's several of them that we run into here, and it's really kind of interesting because we wouldn't know, we wouldn't know all these things except by special revelation, but he's giving us the special revelation of Romans 1 to explain the general revelation that we all know. So if you, if these insights, first, is that God can be known humanly without special revelation because God decided to do that. Now, of course, God is a spirit, and he doesn't have a body like men, so most of us have not seen him with our physical eyes because it would be really hard to see. Uh, you, you haven't given God a hug, as I mentioned in Sunday school, because it's hard to get your arms around him. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being or wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And we're so minute in comparison. God is big, and we're itty-bitty small. The first thing that you, this insight about spiritual sight, is that God can be known because God said so. If you look at verse 19 and 20 again, you'll see it right there. For what can be known about God is already plain to them. It's already plain because God revealed it. He showed it. Uh, he has shown it. Uh, the, the, the tense of the verb there in the Greek is not saying that he started showing it, but that he has already started showing it and he continues to show it. It's really neat. We all know that people should be aware of God. God made it plain for the secular world. And that's why he said there is no excuse. If you look down, you'll see that at the end of that verse, um, in verse, verse, uh, verse 20 at the end. So that they are without excuse. Now, what does it mean? One of these insights about spiritual sight is that God has left you with enough information, with enough data, to be clear enough that you cannot deny that there is a God. Now, you may only know about that God, but God has given us that information. It is clear enough to see him in this life. And that is why people are without excuse. Now, I find it interesting that the reason why people don't go around and see God like they should is because in, at the end of verse 19, these same people who are supposed to clearly see what God set up in the beginning. In other words, when God made this world with Adam and Eve, this world was a wonderful place. You know, you might even be able to sing with that, that guy, what a wonderful world. Adam and Eve had no thorns, no thistles. They had no broken relationships. They didn't have a schedule that they had to wake up at a certain time. They didn't have to punch a clock. They didn't have to get a paycheck. And they didn't even have to pay taxes. What a wonderful world. When God made it all, his fingerprints were on everything. And Adam and Eve could see those fingerprints. And they could praise God. Now, since that time, since Adam and Eve understood what sin was when they ate the forbidden fruit and found out what the wrath of God was, they haven't been looking at the world as being so wonderful. Man, they had a baby and thought, oh, we get a reset button. And then that baby grew up and killed the next baby. What a mess. What a mess. And they, they, they didn't get to stay in their, in their uh, plush apartments that God had set up for them in the Garden of Eden very long. He ended up evicting them. You guys can't stay here because I know you'll eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and eat, I mean, of the tree of life. You can't do that. So God graciously said, get out of here. I've got a way to save you and his special revelation. But in the meantime, the general revelation is still out there. But why can't people see it? Why is it that if you go to, to Cape High School down the road or if you go to any university and you go to a science class, they're going to tell you there is no God, why is it? Well, they become wise. They claim to be wise, but they're proving their foolishness because most of those schools, if you go back in history, just go back to 200, 200 years when they were founded, and guess who founded them? It was people that were believers in God. 
And these people set up charters for these schools to advance education so that people would know, know how to read so they could read the Bible. So that they would, in, in many ways, just like the state charters of, the, of each of the colonies, it was to advance Christianity. But now their goal is not to advance Christianity. It's to advance a Christless life. There is no God. And you don't give God the credit. Now, at the end of verse 19, if you look there again, this is why they don't see it. The truth that's there is suppressed. How do you suppress truth? Well, it's just like um, sometimes if you have a crying baby, um, what do you sometimes do if you're a parent or grandparent? You, you stick a pacifier in the mouth? Um, or sometimes you turn on a TV show that they like, or you say, hey, look over here. Or sometimes, they, what, what? You know, and you try to distract them. The art of distraction. Because what are they really doing when they're crying and they're miserable like that? It's they're caught up and focused on something, and when you can change their attention, they don't stay focused on that. The idea of suppressing the truth is that Satan goes around and he grabs our attention and he says, look over here. Oh, did you see that? Oh, did you catch up on the news here? And before long, instead of focusing on the truth, the truth has, be, has been put down. It's been put behind us. And we're moving on to something bigger, better, greater, grander. They have suppressed the truth. And that's one of the insights that you're going to find about this spirit, the general revelation is out there. It's plain to see. It's still out there. But we don't often see it because the truth about God's existence has been suppressed. And people don't even train up their children in the way they should go. So many kids, they only know, use the word Jesus as a curse word. And if you try to explain God to them, they just use the word faith now. Which is almost godless. Just means that maybe there's something more than us. Now, I told you there's three points in the sermon. The first one is that God provides insights about the spiritual sight. And, uh, and there is truth that can be known about God. And, and that truth was the righteousness of God has been revealed. And then you also find that God himself is revealed. There's three things about God that, is, that, that are seen in, in chapter 1 leading up to this. But secondly, I want to focus most of our time on the invisible attributes. God explains how invisible attributes are made visible. How are invisible things seen? Because the very idea of them being invisible means we can't see them. It's almost like they're not there at all. But God is actually telling us that he exists and that you should be able to see even these invisible attributes that are being suppressed. Okay, the key concept here is by perception. It is not by physical eyes. It is by perception. Invisible characteristics have been perceived by man. At least man has been made with the ability to perceive the physical realm around him or around her. Perception. How does it work? Well, by way of visible stuff in the world. In other words, it's not up to your imagination, but it's up to you to be able to observe and to take in. If you look around, you're going to end up seeing things. And when you see things, there are perceptions that you'll get from those things. You know, just like when you're in a building and you have lights shining, we have light inside with no windows. So the question is, how do we have light inside? You perceive that something is happening to bring light here. And those of you that know a little bit more data, you're going to figure out that, oh, there's certain kind of light bulbs, and those light bulbs are emitting these, these light waves. And our eyes are picking them up. But then some of you are even going further and saying, well, in order to have that produced, there has to be energy. And so there's energy all around this building, too, that you got to get, we all know, to be plugged into. And then those of you that even figure out, well, how does the energy get here and where is it generated? It's really fascinating when you can perceive all these things, even though when you walk into the room, you may not have thought any of those things. No man was there at the beginning to see what God set up. In Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, it was only God, and God created. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, then when God had finished creating everything, he said it was very, very good. No man was there to argue with God either. And this is the way 
that it should have been, but because of fallen humanity, creation and providence are clearly seen, but we don't recognize some of the other things. But let me explain to you. In the, in the Confession of Faith, in the Catechisms, we always start, well, when you look at God, you, you see who God is, but the way you see who God is is by what he's done and by what he is doing. Since none of us were there at creation, Genesis 1.31, but we are all here a part of what they call the continuing of creation, providence. God is providing. Some people might say it's predestination. By, it's how God, Romans 8.28, is working all things together. And, and according to Colossians 3, by him all things consist or they hold together. In other words, if, if you're so super smart about the, the smallest thing with the atom, which has the electrons and the neutrons and the protons, you know, why don't the electrons just shoot out? Why do they stay in orbit? And why do they have bonds that they can, like the two hydrogens go in with the one oxygen, can make a water molecule? How come they, that's a great molecule that sticks together? You know, it's because the two open slots and the, and the pack of six go in there, and, and when they fill those slots, it is a complete thing. And man, it's amazing when you look at how all of this stuff holds together. Now, creation and providence. If we had eyes to see, if when you leave this place, if you would recognize what God has given us, he's given us a world to live in, and he's given us time to enjoy it. See, Nature tells us, it yells at us. Even Jesus said, the rocks will cry out and proclaim that I exist. It's so cool. So don't hold your peace about it. Marvel at it. The heavens do declare the wonder. Or as, as the psalmist says in Psalm 139, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I just have to look in the mirror. I just have to understand this body that I have. You know, these abilities that I, that I can do. I mean, I can actually sit in some kind of a car and my eyes can see what's going on and I can respond quick enough that I can turn even to miss a pothole. How in the world does a brain work that quick to have so many things happening? And then sometimes we wonder why we can't remember everything. It's amazing that we remember anything. But God has made it so that we don't have to just rely on our own memory. He has put it out there in general revelation for the whole world to be able to see. And there, there's two invisible attributes that you're supposed to get. The two attributes are his eternal power and his divine nature. Now, let's, let me unpack those two things. An attribute is an adjective about God. And so when you look at the first one, the main, ver, or the main noun is power. When you see creation, you've got to see power. You've got to see power. Now, those of you that were looking at the pictures of that, of that balloon that was, you know, way up in the sky, I saw some pictures of it. It was supposed to have a payload of three buses, the size of three buses. Well, what was in that? We don't know, but somebody said, oh, that could carry a one megaton bomb. I'm like, whoa. Then I'm thinking about the power that could have come over with that balloon. And, of course, all that speculation, and some of it leads to fear and all this kind of stuff. But I'm not focused on the fear I'm just talking about power. How many continents do we have? Seven. How much water is on this earth? Three quarters of the whole planet is covered with it. It's amazing at all that is here. You know, I, I, when I was younger, I had aspirations to climb every mountain. You know, just like the sound of music. Climb every mountain. I, after I climbed one in Scotland, I don't really have the same desire. God has made this world immense. And one of the things that you should clearly see that's plain for every person to get is that God has power. And the fact that he puts on the, the, uh, the adjective there is eternal power is that this power existed before anything that was in this world. In order for the mountain, Mount Everest to be here, in order for the Atlantic Ocean to be here, in order for the continent of Africa to exist, God's power predated it. Because when God said, let there be, it was. Eternal power. Power that doesn't get shut off just because you don't pay the bill. Or because the power grid is down. Eternal power. It should be seen. And we ought to all know that God wields it whenever he wishes. Secondly is his divine nature. Now, this one's a little interesting, and I thought I would have switched it around if I was Paul. 
but the attribute of a divine nature. That there is an existence apart from this realm. Yes, when I look at this world and all the things that are in this world, the, the, the birds and the food and the, the bees and the trees, and, and I see everything around me, but then there is something that is not created. There is something that is far beyond what any of us can imagine. And I'm not talking about heaven, which eye hasn't seen or ear hasn't heard, neither has entered into your imagination the things that God has with his power prepared for them that love him. No, I'm talking about God himself. He is divine. He has a nature that is other. There is nothing that compares to God. And the only thing we can do is compare things that we see in this world. We can't even come up with a good analogy for the Trinity. It's not an egg. It's not a hand. We can't fathom that God is something totally other than this created realm, which is all we know, except when God reveals himself. Because when God reveals things to us, which he's done with general revelation, we know that he exists. The divine nature of God. He is like nothing else, infinite and eternal, and his being our wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Now, the question simply is, can you see those in invisible attributes from creation? Let me walk you through. Can we see that God is immutable? Can we see that God is wise? Can we see that God is holy? Can we see that God is love? Let me stand at the beach. Oh, what a nice whale. Oh, what a nice dolphin. God is love. No, you don't make those connections. The synapses don't come together. When you see a whale or if you see a dolphin or if you see one of those little tiny crabs that run up and disappear in the sand, what you have to do is say, wow. God thought of that. You know, and then when you think about how the, the, the waves come and how it cleans off the surface of the ocean and how there's movement so there's no stagnation and how that actually is salt water so it doesn't need preservatives, it's amazing how it all works together and how fish can stay under the surface and they're happy there, if they are happy. When they jump out of the water, they're probably not so happy because that's not their place. So when you understand these Invisible attributes of God are not all communicated by the general revelation. You need more. Now, there is something in this passage that surprised me. It is surprising to me that God showed another perception about himself. And it was written on their hearts. If, if you could turn to Romans chapter 2, verse 14. I want, you see, I want you to see what's written on their hearts. For it, it for if it is... For if it is the adherence of the law, I turned the wrong page. That's why I couldn't get it out. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verse 14. For when the Gentiles, or when the secular people, when the folks that didn't grow up with the Old Testament being read to them, when these non-religious folks who do not have the law of God, they don't have the Torah, they don't have the Pentateuch, they don't have the Old Testament writings in Hebrew, they don't know even how to translate them. They, don't, they didn't grow up knowing them or memorizing them. When these Gentiles, when regular people who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires. In other words, hey, something else that people have. They have some kind of a, a morality. They have a sense of right and wrong. They have a sense of value. They have something more. So when you look at this created world, secular people, the Gentiles who don't have all this Christianity stuff, they, they do sometimes think like us. They realize that God has something out there. He says, they do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show, and this is verse 15, they show that the work of the law is already written on their hearts. And because it's in here, it says that their conscience also bears witness. In other words, their thoughts relate to the fact that God has given them a, a, a part of his image in their soul, and now their thoughts betray them that they can't suppress all this truth because they end up doing what the law says. Their conscience bears witness with them, and their conflicting thoughts, in other words, they get troubled over this, 
because, because it bears witness. Their, con their conflicting thoughts accuse them or even excuse them. Now, when you realize what's going on here, is there something else with general revelation here? God made you in his image. And you are aware that there is right and wrong. Now, you may not know exactly where the line is. When is this wrong and when is this right? My son called me last night and he was asking me, Dad, um, is, is certain things right or certain wrong? Like bringing up, can you be a part of the American Revolution and take up a gun to fight? Because then you're wrestling with the issue is, do you need to submit to the governing authorities which were under the king? Or do you want to have a free country where you're going to stand up and fight with George Washington against the tyranny? When do you, how do you figure this out? It was very, very interesting when we were trying to figure it out. What is right and what is wrong? And, and, and the scripture says that there is general revelation written on Gentiles' hearts, basically on everybody's heart, about there is right and there is wrong. And that's one of the arguments that we use in apologetics to explain that, hey, when, when, the, when the Supreme Court rules that, that you can have marriage in any way, shape, or form that you want, guess what? The Supreme Court is wrong. And we all know it. And the reason why we know it is because they have always ruled against it until recently because now they're enlightened. They have another gospel. They have another truth because they've suppressed the truth and now they've come up with another way of doing things. And they're wanting us to buy into it and to suppress the truth that we know. Basically to try to erase what's written on our hearts to pretend that there is no right and wrong. Except we're wrong if we don't do what they tell us to do. Now do you understand these these? These things about the invisible attributes of God. His eternal power, his divine nature, and the morality that's in your heart. Men are without excuse. They, they have other perceptions, though, um, because they don't want to do what's right. And that's why he says in verse 32 of chapter 1, verse 32, where I've already read a little bit of it, though they know God's righteous decree, which has been written on their heart, that those who practice bad things deserve what? They deserve to be punished. You see, that's another one of the things that general revelation reveals, but it's not because of looking at the waves. It's because you look in your heart and you know that God made you special because there is wrong for you to do wrong and it's right for you to do right. And you know it, according to verse 32, you know that the principle that if you do wrong, you will die. And by the way, did Adam and Eve know that? Well, God gave them special revelation at the beginning because he said, um, if you eat of the tree, you will surely die. But secondly, the key was is that once they left out of the garden, they had already died. They had the spiritual death. They had been set apart from God's communion and they, they needed now a covering. They needed a remedy. They needed a redemption. Now, I'm just going through and explaining these invisible attributes that are in the text. And when you see them all, then the, the fourth thing, uh, before I get to the fourth thing, is the fact that there's two responses that people that suppress the truth, that have these three forms of general revelation, they, they, have, they neglect two things. They neglect honoring God and they neglect being thankful to God. And that just makes sense. Hey, if you have suppressed the idea that God is actually out there. And when you look around, if you go to a science class and say everything is evolutionary, then you will not say, thank you, God, for making me. Thank you, God, for giving me life. You won't do that because you've just erased God from the equation. So it makes sense that they're not thankful. But they can't honor God. They can't even be good stewards of what God gave them. And that's so sad. They don't honor God and they're not thankful for what God provided them. Their reasoning is that they have a mind that has gone futile. It's, it's minus the truth about God, so now they're trying to connect puzzle pieces that don't fit. And that's why they become fools, because they reshape the puzzle and they cram the pieces in and it is a mess. Their hearts are darkened and they walk as if they're blind. And that's what you got to be careful of these days. Be careful who you listen to because you don't want to be the blind following the blind. Now, the new actions that they do to replace, since they don't honor and they are not thankful, now they boast and they exchange. They go around and say, I'm smart, I'm really good, I'm an authority, I'm a scientist, I'm this or I'm that. And they'll tell you that right up front. They'll let you know that they have credentials. 
Have you ever tried that? You try to make sure that people will listen to you because you've got credentials. So they'll boast. That's what you can see here. They're boasting of their wisdom as if they understand. They claim to be so smart, but without God, they're actually foolish. And st- they, their reasoning, instead of, uh, uh, they, they demonstrate the folly in their reasons. And that's why they exchange things. Twice you'll find the word exchange. They exchange the glory that should be going to God, the honor that he gets, and instead of giving it to God, they alter it around and say, let's give it to somebody around here. Let's give everybody a pat on the back. Let's everybody give them a pass. Let's give everybody citizen status. Let's just give everybody health care. Let's just give everybody anything that they want. Now, when you think about it like that, this is what the natural man does when they don't see the invisible attributes of God because they're suppressed. They give them to physical things that are on this earth. And so the last point there is, the, is the, the, um, that God actually reveals how undeserving grace is, is distributed to the undeserving. This undeserved grace does not have to be given. In other words, when God entered this world, general revelation tells us that he, he made it and he put it out there for all of us. And we get to enjoy it. Some of us get to enjoy it for a little longer than others. Some people will have a life that's 70 years. Some might only have it for seven minutes. Who knows? Our days are numbered, Psalm 90. But while we have life, let's eat and drink and not be merry for tomorrow we die, but let's eat and drink and serve God because today is the day that we're supposed to serve the Lord. Colossians says that let us do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. But when you look at this grace of God, I have to just highlight two things in verse 24 and verse 26. Therefore God and therefore uh, for this reason God. Now let's look at both of those. If, If you look here, therefore God gave them up And in verse 26, the reason God gave them up, um, for this reason God gave them up. In both cases, you have a a restatement about grace. Pastor, how do you get grace out of that? Well, because when you understand that God has made this world with all the general revelation that's there, including what's written on your heart, and the fact that everybody is suppressing it, and everybody now is exchanging what God deserves to get, the glory and the credit that he gets that's going now to man and to things, even to football teams and even even to other places. We just give our attention and our love and our loyalty and our devotion to all these other things. We break the first commandment of not having God first. He says, do you see it? Do you see it? It's so clear. So what does God do about grace? He teaches us about grace in Romans 1. God stops extending the grace. He pulls it back. And that's verse 24. And he pulls it back in verse 26. And it's very interesting that God has created this interesting world. It is now fallen and broken. Creation groans, waiting for the redemption, waiting for the God that made it to be able to fix it. You know, this world was never, this world was a, a, a campground. It was a place where we're going to visit for a little while before he takes us to our home in heaven. So this world was never intended to be a forever thing. But God loved people who are on this world that he gave his only begotten son, and that was special grace, special revelation, to reveal to us saving power. But for these people in in Rome, they're getting an understanding about this grace. God didn't have to be nice to them. God wasn't forced to go ahead and give them anything that they requested. If they suppress the truth and they exchange the glory and they give it to things that are not godly, God doesn't have to say, well, okay, you're one of those people on earth. I'll give you it anyway. God says, no, I'm free. I'm free to give grace. I'm free to withhold grace. Grace is unmerited. It is not deserved. It is not something that you can buy. It is not something that you can produce. It is not something that you can steal. Grace is something that the divine nature of God extends if he wishes. And we are all breathing, so we have it. His grace upon the just and the unjust alike, and that's pictured with rain that falls, to water the ground. What a beautiful picture. But when God pulls back his grace to individuals who have suppressed the truth, 
He pulls it back and pulls it back and pulls it back. You understand about grace? He leaves people to themselves. And when he leaves them to themselves, what happens? It gets messier. I finished the sermon today by asking the two questions in Romans chapter 2. There are two simple questions, and that is the first in verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, this is verse 3 of chapter 2. Do you suppose, O person at New Covenant Church, you who judge those who practice things and yet you do them yourselves, that you are going to escape? This is basically the question is, okay, you got general revelation, whether you're saved or not saved. Do you think that you're, you can be judgmental of somebody else and don't you think that it's going to come back on you? Do you think that you will escape from God's discernment? And of course the answer is, don't be crazy. Don't be crazy. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans chapter 3. Then, then the second question is in verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? Now, all of those three words, they all are, 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 are adjectives or, or shall I say, appositives for grace. If you look at it, the riches of his kindness. God has an abundance of kindness. That's grace. Why would God be nice to you? It's because he's gracious. You're not deserved. And then you have the word forbearance. Forbearance kind of links itself to mercy because mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. Justice is when you get what you deserve. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. And so mercy is God holds back. He doesn't give you that immediately, that, that bump into hell. How many of you are without sin? How many of you are without sin today? I mean, we all know that we've fallen short. So this grace is amazing. That God didn't pull it back. But he says, don't, don't fall into this trap, O secular person. Do not presume upon the grace of God, which is the riches of his kindness, the riches of his forbearance, and even his long patience. God doesn't get mad when the red light doesn't switch after five minutes. He's patient. He can wait. God is, according to, to, to 1 Peter, he is long-suffering. He can hang on. He's not under any kind of a rush. So these are the two questions that come out. And when you realize that, brothers and sisters, don't fall into the trap that the secular world does. That's why I told you that this is always coupled with special revelation. If you could keep with me with the verses, I want to walk through the Romans road. I want you to see what he's going to explain to them real quickly because we'll see this in the days to come. In, first, in Romans 3, verse 10. In Romans 3, verse 10. The first thing he's going to declare, declare is, hey, all of you that are on this earth, you are all, what's the word? It starts with an S. You're all sinners. Everyone's a sinner. Everyone, Romans 3, 10. We are all bad. If you go to Romans 3.23, then you're going to find out that he goes on to say that all of us have missed the mark of perfection. We're supposed to have this righteousness that he talked about that the gospel reveals, you know, because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. But in Romans 3.23, we don't have it. We can't manufacture it. We fall short of it. So back in Romans 3, verse 21, in verse 21, he ends up explaining, there is a righteousness that you can get that you can't produce yourself, but God can. See, that's grace. Are you getting, beginning to see how this book is not all about condemnation? It's about God extending his grace. If you go to chapter 5, verse 6, you're going to, you know, part of the Romans road, uh, Romans 5, verse 6, where it says, for while we were yet still in sin and trespasses, God intervened. He stepped in. And you can go to John 3, 16 there, which I don't have the verse, but God stepped into this time his creation to be able to do that while we were yet in sins and trespasses. If you go back to verse 118, chapter 1, verse 18, you can see that because God was going to pour out his wrath on anybody that's godless. His grace is not going to be extended to the godless forever. He's going to pour out his wrath, which is going to put people in hell. And that's verse chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of your sin or the payment that you get because you're a sinner is not that you get a pat on the back, but it's the death it is the second death, which means that you're cut off from not God, but from the grace of God. When you go to hell, the reason it's so miserable is because there's no grace there anymore. And as a result, there's no love. The wages of sin is death, but the gift that God gives graciously, he gives you something you don't deserve, is eternal life. 
chapter 8, verse 1, Romans, he ends up explaining a little bit more that, the, that because you've been given this gift of righteousness and you have eternal life, then you can see that there is no more condemnation. Okay, let me ask you this. Are you condemned? No. If I asked you, is God condemning you if you're a Christian? No. There may be people who go around and condemn you. They may shake their finger at you and say, you are bad. And the thing is, you may actually be bad. You may have missed the mark and they may have noticed it. But condemnation is not for Christians. There is therefore no more condemnation when you have received this gift of righteousness. If you are in Jesus Christ. And that's why if you go down two more verses to 8 chapter 3. God has done what we who are weak and fleshly could not do. He sent Jesus Christ to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. He kept the covenant. And so he imputes this righteousness to us. And if I could take you to chapter 4 verse 3. You can see that this is exactly the way it was in Genesis 12. Romans chapter 4 verse 3. As it was with Abraham. It will be with us. That God justifies the ungodly or he justifies those who used to be afar off and he brings you in and he makes you his own are you a christian i pray that when you go out and look at the, at the beauty of spring when you see more than just those beautiful pink pink blossoms on the way into church today that you must have said wow god has a neat paintbrush he can put this color in this week, and in a few weeks, it'll be a different color. It's amazing. And the heavens declare this glory, and we are without excuse. And yet we go around this world day after day, and we live as if there is no God. And the only time we get on our knees is when something bad happens. Oh, God, help me. We ought to be able to be on our knees or on our feet and always walking with God. The just always do. They live from faith to faith in the righteousness that has been imputed. You can see this? That special revelation that's piled on to the general. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, I do pray that as we gather here today that we will draw near to you that we'll marvel at your fingerprints all around us, but that we'll marvel at you loving us, that you would provide that Romans road. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, as you think through those thoughts, the offering is going to be collected.